welcome to the third episode of Fighting Climate Crisis, conducted in association with the UNICEF. In this episode, we will be digging deeper into the world of constructions. Can eco-friendly constructions help tackle the ongoing climate crisis? We speak with Kabir Vajpayee, an architect who is also the co-founder of Vinyas. During our discussion, we learn more about eco-friendly constructions and what citizens can do to promote such ideas. Professor Kabir Vajpayee, thank you so much for joining us on this unique episode in association with UNICEF and we're happy to have you on this series called Fighting Climate Crisis. What are your thoughts on this? Are we doing something wrong or should we consider reanalyzing the entire construction process? Thank you so much, Jitanjali and Swati. Yes, I think it's a very pertinent and an important question that you have raised. Yes, certainly, I think that we need to totally rethink the way the construction and the way the design is taking place right now. If we look at some of these societies which continue to stay, I would say, with the nature rather than consuming the nature, and this would include a whole range of tribal societies within India and also aboriginals in many parts of the world, where the human species is part of the nature rather than something which is away from it. And the moment you look at that, you will suddenly find that they don't need an air conditioner. They don't need many of those things that we are right now using in our own habitats and the kind of energy footprint we are creating in the very process. So at this juncture, I would say, yes, COVID has been a very big reminder to tell us that you cannot go on consuming nature like this. Just look at any kind of road construction project which takes place, or for that matter, any construction project which is currently on in Delhi. It is all about first uprooting the trees. They are not part of the design process. They are kept away from it. I'm just giving tree as one example, but because this is something that we all have experienced. You look at all the national highways, especially the new expressways across, and you will find that the entire landscape has been denuded. So whether you look at cities, whether you look at any kind of urbanization process, very often, many of the elements of nature are seen as consumption elements. And the moment that happens, obviously, we come to the point where we are right now. So what is wrong with what we have right now? I think we need to look at the footprint very clearly. And this could be the footprint on water. It could be the footprint on air. It is a footprint on all the natural elements that we continue to consume. What we have done is that essentially most of the construction materials that we consume, they are emitting carbon dioxide in the very process of either manufacturing or using or any such thing. So essentially we become a more carbon producing entity as human species across the world. And we know for any infrastructure project, whenever the trees are cut, there is some figure which is shown to us that we will plant so many trees. But we just don't know what is the fate of those replanted trees. We just don't know where they were actually planted and did they actually grow and somebody actually took care. So what is very fundamentally needed is that whatever we are consuming, are we replenishing it back? If you look at the general way of life today, the use of certain items, let's say air conditioners or coolers or even heaters, etc. have become part of every household. Are you saying that we have to stop using it or are you saying use it judiciously and wisely? To put it brutally, I would say, yes, we have to stop it. Now, coming to the practical side of it and understanding why I'm saying this and what is the meaning of this. See, the fact of the matter is that 
is it so that for millions of years and for whatever number of years in which the human species has been there on the earth did they survive because of air conditioners and heaters that is the first thing if they did survive without that it is possible to survive and not just survive but actually thrive that is one so the argument that we cannot survive without them i think needs to be looked at go to even agra and you will find that for cooling buildings there was a system and i'm talking about rajasthan where you will have temperature storing up to 50 degrees centigrade were they cooling it with air conditioners no what were they doing they were doing something very simple they were using the principles of physics and what were those principles basically they were using the expansion of gases to cool the building and how were they doing it they were basically having perforations in the building in the direction from where the hot wind would come it would enter into these very small perforations that you will find in a whole range of jain temples you will find them in a whole range of residential buildings and the moment that hot air enters into those perforations and enters inside it expands and in the process of expansion it cools down and that cool air is what you experience inside so it is not that you are sitting right under the sun you create a shelter but it is created in a very sensitive manner are these constructions aimed at dealing with any sort of climate at large or is it basically for that particular region and then how does one live in those conditions you could have variations of that where you have let's say low humidity to moderate humidity to high humidity let us look at kerala for instance the traditional houses there and the traditional buildings there if you look at them very closely you will find that they do have perforations but of a very different kind and they allow the wind movement to take place especially they are designed and aligned in such a manner that when you have the highest humidity in the air you still get a very good breeze flowing inside the building and it is the breeze flowing inside the building which doesn't make you uncomfortable with that high humidity now obviously there is an adaptation which has been done similarly where it is very dry you could create some other what we call as microclimate using plant and these could be plants which can be grown in that particular zone or for that matter if you go to a place like ladakh it is again a desert but it's a cold desert you have lot of sun you don't have rain but you have very cold temperatures so you won't apply this principle there but you will apply something else where you can actually retain the heat for a very long duration so how did they do it they basically use the building walls as storage systems of heat and they orient the building in a manner where the sunlight and the heat and the insulation that comes in gets stored in the building and then it is released at night when it is the coldest there are principles which are called as solar passive principles and i think they have been practiced for centuries across the world i'm not saying just about india and every place where a civilization wanted to survive and thrive they devised these ways in so many different variations so they are not uniform at all the point is that if with all the science and technology that we have can we take it to the next level i mean sitting in delhi if i'm switching on an air conditioner actually i'm also partly responsible for displacing many people in uttarakhand from where this electricity is generated along the bhagirathi river and they are all drowned villages now and i have seen them with my own eyes i may be paying 6 rupees per unit but actually this is not reflecting truly what has drowned forever in terms of culture in that particular belt so we have to be empathetic in this whole process the second point i want to reiterate here that there is a saying which says that the greenest building is what is already there which means that rather than new construction what is already there you adapt it for better performance and this renovation needs to be done in a very sensitive manner 
I'll give you two, three simple examples. We work with government schools and Anganwadis across the country. And typically you will find in many cases, despite electricity available in a village, you'll find large number of schools and Anganwadis which don't have any electrical supply available. Or even if they have the electrical bills are not paid and hence it is dysfunctional. Now, how do you create a comfortable environment, let's say in Rajasthan or even Uttar Pradesh or in Tamil Nadu or in Karnataka or in Maharashtra, Odisha or any such place where a child is going to a school or an Anganwadi and there's no electricity while we all want all the comforts in the urban areas wherever we are. Now, what is happening there is that they have actually buildings which are not even designed sensitively to respond to the local climate. They are designed in one central location, sitting in Bangalore, in Mumbai or wherever, and then they are made everywhere without any consideration to the local variations of climate and the wind direction and everything else. Now, there are renovations which can be done where you can modify the design of the window. You can do a lot of heat, for instance, comes in from the roof. And if the roof is renovated with thermal insulation and these thermal insulations are something which need not have a very high quality industrial material bought from outside, but a simple potter in your own village could actually give you the pots in larger numbers, which you can invert and put on the roof. And that becomes your thermal insulation. Now, what do you do in the process? One is you support the local economy. You support a local culture of making certain things. You give it a proper respect. And at the same time, you make a more comfortable space for children who are coming to our own schools without investing into a high energy imprint solution. Now, those are the possibilities we need to think. I'm, I just give you one example. There are multiple ways in which things can be done. And the unfortunate part is that our own architectural and engineering education doesn't include this way of thinking. Interesting how you brought about this idea of inverted pots to help control the temperature inside the house. Do you think there's something that residents can probably start with? Absolutely, this is possible. A transition to a drastic change will require some intermediate ways of dealing with it. And that intermediate way could be that we use the same conventional material like a brick. Again, you see the brick itself is using the topsoil. And topsoil is so important for agriculture in an agrarian country. But if you look around wherever the bricks are produced, they are also the places where you have good agriculture. You'll find this as a pattern. And if that is the case, and we are consuming that topsoil to make the bricks, itself is kind of consuming the nature and the environment. Now, you cannot drastically change it overnight. So the solution which was brought in was to use fly ash, which is the ash which comes out of the thermal power stations when you burn coal and the electricity is produced. Now, my simple point here is that it is very toxic in nature. Now, imagine you use a very toxic material to make your entire house. What will that do? I mean, in terms of even vibes. So, you know, we, we need to think about it. Now, coming back to what you just said. So we need a transition in between. And at this point of time, the transition could be, can we use that brick? Can we use that concrete in a more efficient way rather than being wasteful? Can we think about you know, when we are looking at design of spaces, can we, you know, the very requirement of making a house and what we want to, what we intend to make, can we do it in a manner where we think about multiple use spaces so that they are not dead spaces? Just imagine that if you're making a school, for instance, or an office, if it can run in two shifts, we can reduce the footprint of the building by half. The second way would be that, for instance, and this is something we learned from Laurie Baker from Kerala, just by placing the normal brick in a different way, you can save the cement and the mortar, you can save the bricks by up to 25 to 30 percent. 
and yet have the same kind of a building with better thermal insulation. What I'm trying to say is that we need to come up with propositions and answers and we all need to work on it. We are working on it. There are many others who are working on it, but I think it needs a movement across architects and engineers and many other professionals like chemical engineers to come up with solutions. What happens after the building has lived its life? Are we going to dump it in a river, which is exactly what we are doing right now? Or are we going to reuse the material? If you look at most of the traditional ways of construction, the material could be reused or recycled. Look at stone, look at timber, look at mud, look at all such materials. They were always in a cycle. They were never classified as waste at any point of time. But are I these constructions economical? Yes, so there have been people, there have been institutions who have worked on it. What we need is to, to use the, the, the new ways of doing and handling those materials. I'll give you two, three simple examples, like using mud. And you can use mud in multiple ways. One of them is that areas where you have mud, which is not very good for construction, can you stabilize it? And there are now techniques to stabilize it. And those techniques are, again, I would say more environment friendly than making a brick. So they are a good choice. The reason why they become uneconomical is because of the volume and the scale. Let me give you one simple example. Look at cement. Now, the cement industry, when it procures the raw material for making cement, it is basically procuring lime. So lime is the fundamental raw material to make the cement. Today, if you go to the market, a cement bag of 50 kg is less in terms of price as compared to 50 kgs of lime. Now, this is absurd, but this is how it is and why it is like that. It is because the, the procurement price of lime for a cement company is paying a peanut royalty to the government. So it's an economy of scale. Now, we were talking about the carbon footprint. Lime as a fundamental material, you go across Rajasthan and you will find lime as the most fundamental material used. You go to Karnataka, you will find lime as a material which has been used extensively. You go to many other parts of India and you will find lime as a fundamental material. Lime absorbs carbon dioxide. Cement emits carbon dioxide which is why it was used extensively, whether knowingly or unknowingly before. So it is all a question of economy of scale, which is why if today you do it, you will find it expensive. But I think in any transition phase, we will have to go through that kind of a phase. And as a community, if we take a conscious decision, a point will come maybe in five years or 10 years when the economy of scale itself will surpass that price barrier. And you will find the other one more doable, more sustainable. There are organizations who have developed many of these alternatives, including some government institutions like the Central Building Research Institute in Rurki, who came up with, for instance, non-erodible mud plaster, basically in areas where you have mud and it gets eroded when you have high rains. You could apply this plaster over it and this plaster would be made using some very simple local materials. Now, you still need many of these ways of doing things rather than reducing the research funding and the research work that is happening in, in these directions and also propagating in the architectural and the engineering education and having the practitioners practice it in their buildings. We should use many of these technologies and some of that attempt has been done earlier about using some of these technologies in public buildings so that people generate confidence that yes, this is a doable technology. There's a whole range of architects who have done this and Laurie Baker certainly was one of them. For instance, he created this CDS Trivendrum and it's a building which has multiple floors and it is all made out of something which PWD in the same state had said that this will fall off in next few years. And it has been more than four decades now. 
that nothing has happened to that building. You need such exemplars, and you need these kind of exemplars across. Do you think that there's a certain lack of awareness even among the public at large? Yes, I think you are absolutely right. What probably is very much required is that the various forms of media which are available, and you see the advertising right now of the products of all kinds which come as branded products from the industrial building materials, they get so much publicity. But these other things, because they are not part of any branded products, many of those, they come from smaller entities. They come from smaller communities. They are never advertised as such. And today, because of that advertising arena, they don't really come into the kind of discourses we are talking about. So yes, very much. And I think that is where the role of many civil society organizations and roles of even specialists and role of even government in this case is very critical. I remember there was a time when Hutco, which is still there, it was primarily a finance and loan giving institution to the housing boards across the country. But there was an administrative setup which could see that it need not be just a finance giving institution, but it could also be giving technical advice on what is eco-friendly construction. They in fact invited Lodi Baker to guide that entire process. And I think that that is something which should have been taken forward rather than scuttling it down and reducing it to nothing later on. So every housing board which was taking a loan from Hutco at that point of time was supposed to go through the possibility of using many of these eco-friendly techniques that I had just talked about. And they did. And this did happen in many parts of the country. So the loan itself was a kind of a leverage to take these things forward. And it was then the duty of the housing boards to tell the general public what technology options they are taking and choosing and what is the relevance of that when they apply for a house in a housing board scheme. Now, I think that was a very innovative way of reaching out to the public because it was a very direct, tangible and doable way of doing it. But it required a lot of administrative and financial creativity to think of this kind of thing. I think we all need to step in the way Hutco did at that point of time. And I think we all need to go beyond the set boundary within which we all operate. If we are really concerned about the environment, uh, it is not just about construction industry. It is about many others who are players in the process. Do you think there's hope? Well, uh, <laughs> yes, one can only thrive and live on hope. I think there are students and younger architects who are looking for solutions. When I'm interacting with younger students, students who are passing out or are already studying architecture or planning in their institutions, the kind of questions and the kind of concerns and even young architects who are coming out and looking for practices and looking for jobs. If you ask them that what exactly they want to do, I'm not saying all of them, but many of them do have this kind of an alternative vision that we really want to do something which is different, but it's more relevant. And they might not be able to define it fully, but they are open to understand and listen. And I think that is where the role of a whole range of people, professionals who are already there, they are teachers, they are professors and practicing architects. We all need to constantly engage them with the dialogue. Also share with them the institutional memory of what has already been done so that they don't reinvent the wheel and share with them the data which has already been generated and what they can do further to improve and take it forward. If I may open a Pandora's box in the name of being eco-friendly and fighting towards climate change, it's like you said, we're going to be taking some huge risks, which means a lot of players in the current construction space may either have to bid adieu to their, to their ventures, or they may have to consider restructuring their venture altogether, 
or we might have to you know forego certain luxuries so to speak do you think this this whole process is a rather ugly process or something that eventually people will just come to terms with well it can be a very ugly process if we don't handle it carefully i think we should start with the value and what vision we really have for the future unless we pin down everybody to that vision and how each one of us whether i am a manufacturer i run a industry of manufacturing steel or i make cement or i produce lime or somebody else does something else or a contractor who does this that or the other i when we all are part of that collective vision i mean we are a diverse country even if we have divergent views we may have divergent interests we still are able to share that common vision and then we kind of move in that direction the educationists move in that direction from the education perspective the practitioners move in that direction from practice perspective the industry which is producing these kind of materials says okay fine in next 10 years we will reduce the pollution we are creating the embedded pollution and the eco footprint that we have in the material but later on we will switch on to a new technology of doing certain things and will seek the support of let's say the chemical engineers who might be a different entity altogether to also collaborate and tell them what can be done and what can be to reach that vision of a common goal that we have i think unless we pin it down it will be a very ugly process because if we leave it out in the open just like that who looks at the conflict of interest then there could be simple guidelines about it and then at a point a regulation can come in not initially but subsequently that okay if we have all committed to this we must have a internal regulation to see that what is the quality of inflow water into a industry and what is the quality of outflow water from the same manufacturing industry are we moving in the direction that we wanted to move and are we making a footprint which is much less much i would say light and not a deep footprint onto the nature Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Fighting Climate Crisis. It was a real pleasure and yes, we definitely hope that in the days ahead people construct with nature and not excluding nature. <laughs> Thank you so much for being part of our show. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Stay tuned for more such content. You can follow us on our Spotify channel Businessline Podcast as well as on Google Podcasts and the website www.thehindubusinessline.com. Thank you.